Coming to you from the KUCI headquarters in sunny Irvine, California. It's half past five with Paxton Wright. Tonight's guests, the directors behind the upcoming Shakespeare Shorts Festival, right here at UC Irvine, it's Josh Fader and Sarah Rodriguez. Featuring music from Caro Caro Benito. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Paxton Wright. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the first full-length episode of Half Past Five with Paxton Wright. Technically not the first if you are listening to this on the podcast, but uh, if you're listening on the radio, this is the first one where we don't have any uh, baseball interrupting the show, so we will be doing the full half hour. So get excited for that good, good stuff if you have any uh, questions, comments, requests, insults, declarations of unbridled love, uh, email me at paxtonwright at kuci.org. That is all one word, all lowercase, P-A-X-T-O-N-W-R-I-G-H-T at kuci.org. Now, without further ado, enough about me. We're going to get to the, the meat of the sandwich that is this show. That is our guest's. Uh, Joshua Fader and Sarah Rodriguez. How are you guys doing today? Doing all right. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Sarah? Yeah, very excited to be here. Thanks uh, for having us. Of course. Thank you for being here. Now, for those that aren't already familiar, you want to tell them a bit about what the Shakespeare Shorts Festival is at UCI? Sure. Josh, take it away. Uh, sure. So every other spring, the, the drama program puts together what's called the Shakespeare Shorts Festival. Shakespeare, as in William Shakespeare, oh. and uh, <laughs> uh, sort of a new playwright. You might not have heard of him yet. Uh, and shorts, because they are sh- much shorter productions. A typical p- Shakespeare play is anywhere between three and five hours if you do the entire, do the play in its entirety. Uh, these have both been cut down to one hour, so they're sixty minutes each. We do them outdoors as our own sort of Shakespeare in the Park outdoor Shakespeare festival, and it's the first weekend in May. And they each have eight actors. That's also part of the festival, that each play only has eight actors who play multiple characters. That's, that's my next yes. question. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, have, this has been going on for how many years? I know, the was it the previous one they did? They did Macbeth, I believe, or was that two prior to this? I believe I that was two ago. Okay. I think I this think is so. the fourth I think this shorts? is the fourth one. Okay. But don't don't quote us on that. <laughs> this is the, the fourth one, so say it, <laughs> Sarah Rodriguez. You heard it here first, folks. Good night. Now, <laughs> what I wanted to ask you guys next, so you, you're directing uh, which show each, Josh? You're directing. I'm directing The Comedy of Errors. And, and I'm so. doing Romeo and Juliet. Now, uh, so it, it's got to be tough. Do you condense the shows yourselves, or are you given condensed versions? Oh, we'd condense ourselves. <laughs> oh, boy, that sounds like a daunting and anxiety-provoking undertaking. It sounds like that, yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, we've been working on these since the fall. That's when we started the cutting, and we did the cutting as part of a class. Uh, yeah, in which we we took the quarter to basically cut those those plays down to the hour. And we got to test a few scenes out with actors. We had them read in class, and then kept doing... That was the initial cut, and then we kept cutting and cutting and cutting until we got to hour eight actor mark. So do you try to cut it down to as small a cast as possible, keep the bare essentials so that you don't have to have too many people playing too many roles? Or how does that work? Hmm. I think it depends on the play. 
And I think it depends on what you want to say with it or what you want to do with it. Because I don't think this is the only way of doing a one-hour version of Romeo and Juliet or Comedy of Errors, right? (laughs) There are many ways of doing it. So depending on what your vision is for it, uh, that might shape what you, you know, what you need to do. Or that might shape if it's the bare minimum or if it's cutting a certain plot line out. I think it depends. Right. There are certainly you know, versions of this where you could do it with just eight characters, certain versions where you could have all 30 characters. And Mm -hmm. I think it just is a matter of what the style of the production is. I think you and I have both cut characters quite a bit, but they still obviously have more roles than people. And for each of us, how that manifests itself in production is is different based on the styles of the two shows. Now, of course, you say you've been cutting it down since fall with a class of people, correct? Mm -hmm. So considering that each and every last syllable that Shakespeare has ever written has been studied to death and will continue to be studied to death by scholars for hundreds of years, that that process of saying, okay, this scene is the most pertinent, of course, it's a very subjective thing. Mm -hmm. What is and isn't significant. But did that lead to a lot of, of course, still civil, but but nonetheless somewhat heated debate among you and your peers? I think the the fact that we had a lot of authority over our script in that class where we were cutting it. And I think, I mean, we got to test out some scenes, but we would bring in different actors to do so. So it wasn't the same group other than the, the other playwrights who were playwright directors who were in the class. Surprisingly, it didn't lead to a lot of angry debates. I didn't. No, we certainly had yeah. discussions, and uh, you know, for example, at one point, each of us said, "Well, I cut this plot point. I cut this character. How do you all feel about that?" And sometimes we'd say, "Oh, I kind of miss them, but I understand why." And sometimes we would say, "Oh, I for- didn't even think about the fact that you cut the character because that scene made so much sense." Um, and you know, I think, as you say, it's something that's been looked at for centuries, and I think reminding ourselves that you know this is not the version that everyone will now produce for the rest of time, and yeah, that I mean it's our versions of it, and every director who does a Shakespeare play or of any play has their own interpretation. And specifically with Shakespeare, I don't think anyone does an uncut version. Um, you know, they might only be cutting yeah. it to two and a half hours, and we're cutting it down to sixty minutes. But that there's more freedom because it is everyone sort of has this familiarity. It's been done for hundreds of years. There's more um, more wiggle room. Yeah, I think so. And I think even with these productions, I'm not even saying this is the one-hour version of Romeo and Juliet. There are many ways you could do it. And if I have to do, you know, if if uh, if I have to, if I get the chance to do Romeo and Juliet again in, in a, in a one-hour format, I might do something completely different with it that time. So at least for me, it was also giving myself the permission that we don't have to be that precious about it. This is the one instance for this one particular production in this point in time at UC Irvine. Right. This is what this production is going to look like. But I think, you know, Shakespeare belongs to everybody. Once I understood that, I felt I can really do what I want with this while still honoring Shakespeare. So w- when you approached these shows, uh, how much of... Again, I guess this sort of was all a part of the the process as of last fall with your class. But how much of it uh, did you did you study the analyses and theories and thoughts of of uh, scholars and academics before you? How much of it did you approach with your own subjective take? I guess in the summer is when we were starting to make choices about which plays we were going to do 
because that was also a process of deciding what they would be, what those plays would be. I don't know how much... I think a little bit of half and half. I think I I relied on myself and my instincts and and you know and the conversations with my with my peers, you know, mainly my professor Jane Page and Josh here and a couple other other students that were in the class that in terms of what they were saying and what how they were feeling about the different cuts that I was making. Um I certainly read a lot of you know, thoughts and theories from other people about the play. And I think that's something you have to do. And that's really helpful. Um, but I trusted my own thoughts and my own instincts as well and, and made it what I wanted it to be. Right. Yeah. I think for me, when I was doing the cutting, I hadn't read any analysis or reviews or anything like that. It's something I did since then over between January and, and now. Um, but when I approached the cutting, it was simply what I saw on the page, obviously looking up words, uh, looking at some of the, I had a couple of different editions of the play, reading all the footnotes, reading the explanations of what was mm. going on, because that's a huge inf- you know, about, amount too, to know, okay, in this 10 line speech, what are they really saying? Not just, oh, I get the general gist, but making sure that you have a sentence that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it was based on that. I, you know, I had seen a couple of productions years ago and uh, several years ago. So remembering what stuck out and what I enjoyed and what brought me to this play when I read it. You know, I read probably 15 plays over the summer to choose. I had a top three that I read a second and third time. And when I settled on this play, it was, you know, what were the things that really jumped out to me from that reading that I wanted to focus on, the style, the storylines, you know? And there were times when I tried to keep a certain thing and I ended up having to cut it, or times when I cut something and then after hearing it in class, I thought, no, that's got to go back in. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of the research, more of the, the analytical part came after right? for me. Yeah, I think what's interesting, um, particularly with Roman and Juliet, because it's such a story that we all for the most part, know of. I think a lot of people have never read it who know the story. You know, we all know how it ends. We, you know, and... We saw that Hey Arnold episode ex- where, they we did, <laughs> where they did Romeo and Juliet. We remember. Oh, I'm so uh, glad you mentioned <laughs> Hey Arnold. <laughs> I okay, try to have I- one per episode. Okay. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I think we just know that story so well collectively that you know it was impossible not to listen to any of it because we've all seen different adaptations whether it's a production or movies or lowered adaptations like Nomeo and Juliet or <laughs> you know i mean it's it's just a story that's been in everything at some point but i think listening to the sort of like with comedy of errors when we first started talking about these plays i was like that's the one with the two twins right oh yeah and 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 it gets really weird Right? Um, it, it essentially created the, uh, if you're here and you're here, then that means <laughs> trope. Like, that's like... <laughs> right. Yeah, and yeah. I think that, that was, it was, it's interesting working on a piece that's so, that people have such collective knowledge of and opinions. And some of it I had to say, okay, I'm listening to it, but I'm going to put it in a bank and I need to figure it out on my own before. And then I'm going to listen to it and then I have to make the decision of who I agree with. And so, actually, we're talking about comedy of errors and 
like you said, like everyone knows Romeo and Juliet to some extent or another. Of course, we don't know the whole story, and there is so much more to it than you know drinking the fake poison and then stabbing themselves and then the <laughs> stabbing and then etc. By the way, spoilers for a for a there's some stabbing and poison. Yes. Stabbing and poison are involved, and a surprising amount of naughty innuendos that we can't talk about on the radio. So, yeah. if that if that doesn't get you to the show, nothing will. <laughs> uh, uh, now, but Comedy of Errors, though, it's one that a lot less people are familiar with. I, I'll be the first to admit, before this interview, I had to go and read Comedy of Errors, because I was, I was not particularly familiar with the show, didn't read it in high school, it was listed among Shakespeare's works in high school when we'd read condensed biographies about his life and, and that was that was the extent of it but you know it, as I said it is still so funny and and for those who are comedy fans it, it's such a important foundational piece for a lot of modern comedy what is the most fun part about bringing a show like that to life and exposing that to audiences you know for me one of the big reasons I chose this play is being able to realize just how silly a Shakespeare play can be. I think we often have this idea of it being very highbrow, poetic, and formalized, and old-fashioned, and to sort of help combat that idea, I really wanted to find something that was totally silly, totally bawdy, <laughs> totally absurd, and really go for as much broad physical comedy as I could. and. The, the cast has been really game for that. Every day, somebody comes in with a new crazy idea about some bit of slapstick. Um, the whole play is fundamentally based on mistaken identity because there are these two sets of long-lost twins who were shipwrecked and parted when they were just a few months old and 25 years have gone by. And they accidentally end up in the same town on the same day, <laughs> um, which is totally crazy and totally absurd. And knowing that this was one of Shakespeare's first plays, it was you know written in his first few years of, of really being an established playwright and you sort of see all these tropes that later on he uses in lots of other plays and everyone uses in other plays so to sort of go back to the the beginning of that and embrace how over the top you can be how physically silly you can be how much physical comedy you can get and and doing that with it with this great group of actors who are bringing such funny ideas to the table um I think really helps just celebrate being goofy and being silly and the sort of foundation of so many of these comic forms so are you guys going to be keeping an iambic pentameter with these shows? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, that's sort of a, a fundamental part of doing a Shakespeare mm -hmm. play as a Shakespeare text. Yeah. I mean, I think otherwise, well, why, why do Shakespeare? That's the main beauty and fun of it because most, I mean, a lot of the plots he didn't come up with. So it's really the how those stories are organized and how they're told through through this beautiful language. Um, and a big part of it, especially working with young students, is demystifying that language and, and making it accessible. And yeah, okay, there are rhymes, but but they're saying words and they're communicating right. um, quite clearly, actually. And I think there are plenty of great adaptations of those stories, and those are absolutely worthy productions to go oh, see. Oh, definitely. Um, just the way, as you said, that Comedy of Errors and Romeo and Juliet are both based on very old comedies and tragedies and love stories from the dawn of time, ancient Rome and, and et cetera. So this particular text, it's all about that. And I think the poetry of this is what makes it beautiful as part of the important challenge for college actors to work on and for us as grad directors to dig into 
how do you make this text and these words and these sentence structures and this poetic form be lively and be interesting and be engaging and be understood by the actors, by the audience. And be enjoyed as well. I think it's not just about getting past that structure, it's about really embracing it and and having fun saying words that we don't usually say (laughs) every day. So just so people get a reference for how difficult it is, can one of you guys demonstrate real quick what that rhythm is? Oh, Josh is the scansion master uh, here. <laughs> uh, so to talk a little bit about, for those of you who don't know, what iambic pentameter means, it's the form of poetry that Shakespeare most often wrote in. Uh, not all the time. Um, and certainly in both of these plays, it goes back and forth between the sort of formal verse poetic format and normal everyday conversational prose. But the verse is iambic pentameter, meaning each line has 10 beats that are broken up into five two-beat phrases. Each of those two-beat phrases is ba-ba, and that's called an iam in in poetic terms. Um, and there are different variations. Sure, pentameter, because there are five of them, but there, there's lots of different ways that that form can break. The first thing that comes to mind to me uh, is the opening prologue of Romeo and Juliet, which I had to memorize in high school and have never forgotten, but two households both (laughs) alike in dignity in fair Verona where we lay our scene. Um, Obviously, if we did the whole play like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it would sound terrible and would just sound like a drumbeat after a while. That one hour is going to feel like the full three. Exactly. (laughs) So I think one of the big things that we've worked on with our casts and I think most directors do when they work on Shakespeare, is finding the balance of, yes, we have these pattern of accented, emphasized syllables and not accented, more quieter syllables, and how to embrace that rhythm but make it feel totally natural and totally make sense. And as we sort of talked about, we we worked, we did a big sort of, we called it a scansion party. Uh, Scansion meaning looking at the, the poetic form and analyzing it. And what we said was... What did we well, say? I have no idea. Yeah, what we, we said. But <laughs> oh, we did say, you know, we speak in iambic pentameter for the most part in English. <laughs> like we we speak in that in that rhythm, not necessarily in pentameter, but it, but in that rhythm and it echoes a heartbeat. So it, it's not as heightened as we think it is, you know, and 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 it gives us you clues. You just said a, it's I not did, as heightened as, as we, we think, think it is. Ah. <laughs> Actually is an, a, is a line of iambic pentameter Very, and that goes to show you're that we're <laughs> that words and sentences naturally have emphasis. And this is a yeah. way of sort of organizing that emphasis. And inflections and it gives us a, a an idea of what to look for. Oh, what what should we stress or what is the point of this sentence? Right. Which we do in plays that are not in heightened language in contemporary language. I'm often discussing with actors where to put the inflection on a sentence or on a speech. That that's something we do anyway. Well, uh, I, I guess um, I'll, I'll sort of switch gears a little bit here because um, I'm curious about who you guys are as, as artists specifically. So. You're, you're directing, you're also uh, actors as well, so, um, correct? No, Not really. really. <laughs> no. Yeah, we've, we've both been actors in our, in our careers at some point, but, and uh, I mean, I most actually recently d- did a, a, an acting gig uh, a few weeks ago, and I, but I still don't consider myself an actor. Yeah, I consider myself a, a director. Director really. at heart. And yeah. Is it always? Is it? Is it stage? Is the 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 big creme de la creme uh, prize that you got your eyes on, or is it? Is it film, television? What are you? I like both game? mediums. I uh, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm merging film and TV into one, but uh, I right. I 
I like that as much as I like the stage. I'm much more versed in the stage. My experience behind a camera is a little bit more limited than that than on stage. But I like both mediums. I think they're both really wonderful and they, they, they're both very fulfilling to me. Right. I have not had any experience uh, in any sort of camera work, film, TV, anything like that. There's really amazing art out there being created on film and TV. And if somebody offered me that gig, I would totally be gung-ho about trying it out. But that's not something that I actively pursue. I just have a deep love of the theater. It's, you know, I've been involved in theater since I was two years old. And it's just always where I knew I would spend my life. Yeah, I, I grew up as an actor and director. Like my whole life, I always sort of was interested in both as a kid. Um, and in college, I mostly focused on directing with some some bit of acting. But I haven't performed on stage in eight years and have no desire to, to do so again. But directing is, is, is a love and a passion of mine. And I... You know, I really love working on a on a team with uh, great actors and great designers and great stage managers, um, all putting together a show. All right. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what else you guys have in store in the future. Uh, just one last question before we wrap this interview up. Uh, this is a this is a silly one, but everyone who's involved in theater seems to have a quote-unquote horror story at some point of something that's gone horribly wrong. <laughs> I know, again, even in my limited experience, I've had a, a number of them. So. Without anything too uh, personal or sad, we don't want anyone who broke a collarbone and could never <laughs> walk again. Nothing like that. But, uh, you know, what are, what are some, some light-hearted, safe-for-radio, goofy disasters on stage you've had? I remember once I was assistant stage managing a show in which at the end of it, this big wall that's upstage that has a bunch of... the the that's there's the big wall and the big wall just sort of parts in in two and it's uh and it reveals this like wall with a bunch of light bulbs because the end of the show was a big concert and i remember one wall going and not the other one and it was supposed to be this beautiful reveal and instead it was just half a wall gone and the other one <laughs> not quite and so hearing from the other asm on the other side of the stage it's not going it's not going i don't know what to do and after i had pulled my side running over to the other side and going let me see if i can help and then just pulling this wall uh, until it finally went so the audience probably saw just like a eh, 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 and then you know uh Something's I, not right so, with this. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and I. But at the same time, it was such a big, crazy like concert that uh, part of me thinks maybe they didn't even notice yeah. that, that happened. That's that's um, the other thing too. Yeah, is, so, is half the time they're like it's only noticed by the casting it, crew. Yeah, They've seen the show a hundred times. I think. I guess the other disaster I can think of, but this one I wasn't quite involved in. I just saw it and knew the people performing the show. Um, yeah, somebody got a, a pretty nasty finger cut during a play with a slap chop and uh, then had the, the, to like like, like the, yes, the infomercial yes, slap yes, chop that what was a prop was <laughs> is it still running can I see it somewhere <laughs> this was yeah it was a, a year or so ago and it and oh my gosh the poor guy he got injured with the slap chop and then he tried to he had to remove the slap chop and it was sort of object theater so it was like the play was being told with you know uh, like puppets but using a slap chop as right. a character, a mug as a character, and the slap chop cut this poor actor's finger, and then removing it, and then the thing just bleeding profusely for the next 20 minutes that were left of the show. The uh, spiky-haired guy I with the <laughs> earpiece said it was perfectly safe. <laughs> <laughs> you would think, yeah, and like watching this person then perform the show with only one hand, 
and trying to, you know, and, get, and like wrapping the finger, <laughs> like going through several rags, and oh. you know, and then getting stitches at the end of the of the night. But oh, that's that's a fun evening. There you go. <laughs> wow. But no one lost anything. It's all good. Oh, uh, except yeah. a finger. Oh, it's still got, there. It's still there. It's still there. It was just a brief, a brief it was loss a brief, of finger. Yeah. <laughs> in high school, I was in a show, and thank goodness it was uh, our final dress rehearsal. I had this big, quick change right before the final scene. And it was not going well. I try, I finished it up. I was like running on stage, buckling things and, and buttoning things. And I get on stage to like sing my big note and my pants just go down. <laughs> um, and, you know, and thank goodness it was a fine. It was a dress rehearsal. So, like, you know, there was no audiences there. No, my parents were not there. Um, but, I, yeah, I remember being, you know, and, you know, you're 17. So you're just mortified that your pants just went down in front of all of your friends. Um, and <laughs> on then, their own? Like it's just they just weren't buckled. Like it was a quick change that did not get a quick, uh, very fast costume change that did not finish in time. Okay. So I ran on stage and they, down they went. Um, and then in in college, I was in a show too where I remember sort of there's this moment where we we're all walking down stage and we had this um, section of the stage that went out over the orchestra pit and I just stepped right off of the stage and fell into the orchestra pit. But luckily the orchestra was only on one side. The other side was just a big empty space with crash pads. Cause at another point in the show, somebody jumped into it. So I just stepped right onto the crash pad and just bounced right back up onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember exactly what happened that day, but I got back on the stage and that was that. I would love to see just you, you fall off the stage and a single tuba in the orchestra just <laughs> <laughs> close the curtains. Well, hey guys, thank you so much for being on the show. This was a, a terrific interview. I was so glad you were able to make the time for this. Thank um, you. Thanks for having us. Of course. Now, before we go, we uh, we do have a song by uh, a band, uh, a staple of KUCI. If you're a regular listener, you're, you're familiar with them. Kiro Kiro Benito. The song is uh, Only Acting. We will get to that shortly. Sarah Rodriguez, uh, director of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Josh Fader, director of Comedy of Errors for the upcoming uh, Shakespeare Showcase. Shorts. Shakespeare Shorts. Shakespeare Shorts, excuse me. Um, and that takes place on May 2nd, 3rd, and 4th outside the Intercollegiate Athletic Building in the School of Humanities at uh, UCI. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Paxton Wright here, recording several days after the initial interview that I did with Josh and Sarah. I uh, forgot to mention that the show is also being put on by artistic director Jane Page. Wouldn't be right to talk about the information behind this show without crediting her, because she is a hard-working lady, and the show would not exist without her. So, wanted to throw that out there. All right, you folks stay classy and dreamy. Fare thee well. Bless you, Jane Page. For more information regarding the show details in general and show times, you can check out the UCI School of Humanities website. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.